Let's pray before we get into the word. Lord, we thank you for just who you are, how you've revealed yourself to us. We praise you, as we sang, for your faithfulness. You are the only worthy God of our praise and our worship. And Lord, I pray that as we look into your word, that it would be an act of worship and adoration, that we would come to know more fully who you are and be able to worship you better for it and serve the purpose of your kingdom because of it. In your name we pray, amen. All right, for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm not the guy who's normally up here. That'd be Phil. I still will pray if he's uh, out of town on vacation visiting friends and family. And so he asked me to fill in for him. My name's Zach Salisbury. Um, So I'm really excited to be able to continue in the series that we've kind of been going through. Um, Meals with Jesus is the title of it. And so what we've been doing is going through and looking at different times in which Jesus ate with people, provided in meals for people. Uh, We went through, we, we saw the wedding feast in Cana in John 2, and have continued since then going through Luke and seeing how in the Gospel of Luke, meals that Jesus has or or provides kind of have a theme going through the gospel, and we've seen that through different occasions. And we've seen something really interesting with these meals is that oftentimes it's it's way more than just uh, giving us an account of what happened, right? We've seen, we do see a historical account of, of what happened when Jesus fed people or ate with people, but there's often more to it than that. It's more than just telling us, okay, um, Jesus went to this place and ate with these people and, and all that. No, there's always something deeper going on that Luke, the author, is trying to tell us. So whether it's an inclusion of people on the outside, people who may have been unclean, and, and showing, like last week, showing that uh, Jesus accepts this woman that would have been considered unclean, and just sort of the shock of that when those who are religious, those who are the leaders, the Pharisees and such, are on the outside, and those who are unclean are on the inside. So we've seen how oftentimes there's a little bit more here. There's a little bit more to the stories than just the history, and I think that's really important to keep in mind when we're looking at the Gospel of Luke, uh, and especially this passage today. Uh, This passage doesn't really contain any straightforward teaching from Jesus. Um, Sometimes in the Gospels, Jesus will do something, he'll do a miracle, and then he'll pull his disciples aside and say, okay, this is what I was doing. This this means this, that means that. Or we'll have the author of the Gospel say, you know, Jesus was was meaning this when he did this. That's not really clear in this passage. It's it's a simple account, Uh, and, and so I think it's important to know that when we're accounting, when we're getting these accounts, There's something maybe a little bit deeper that we need to go into. The gospel writers are often called by scholars evangelists, and this illustrates that point. Um, I don't know if you've ever, like me, had the experience of going to old-fashioned style tent meetings or maybe a Christian camp or, uh, you know, had a church where an evangelist came and would preach at the church and, and kind of preach sort of a hellfire and brimstone sort of message. Uh, I definitely experienced that when I was young. And, you know, they would come in and they would tell these stories. They would, they would give, you know, the, the story of the kid that came in there, heard the message, walked away, rejected it, went across the street, got hit by a car, 
and never came to Christ. And, and it was terrible stories, terrible stories with very probably bad motives to try to make you do things and believe things and make a profession of faith. But what that illustrates, uh, I'm not saying that that's what the Luke is, but the gospel writers as evangelists, they're doing the same sort of thing in that they're telling us stories, they're recounting events in history, not so that we know they happened. That's part of it. I mean, it, it happened. But they're recounting it to tell us something, to make us think a certain way, to get us thinking. And I think just want to preface that before we go into this passage. That's a very important part of what's going on in this specific text. So the, the question that we have for us at the top of the bulletin is, it says up there, why didn't Jesus send the crowds away? And as I was working through this, kind of starting to notice that that question is part of it, but there's other questions in the text that we need to answer as well before we answer that question. So in order to begin, we're going to start by reading a little bit further up in the passage. We're going to start reading in Luke 9, verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through verse 26. This can be found in the Pew Bibles, the Black Bibles, um, on page 866. And we'll start reading in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. In whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whatever they do not, whenever, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, but by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12, bas 12 baskets of broken pieces. 
Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. Then he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This text, as I said, the portion that we're talking about primarily today, the feeding in there, doesn't contain direct teaching from Jesus. And so when we come to it, we kind of have to read through the whole context. And that's why I want to read through all that, kind of see what's going on around it, right? We see that Jesus sends out his disciples. He says, go out, preach the kingdom of God, heal the sick, cast out demons, sends them out, okay? At the, at the very beginning, he's sending them out. They're going out without provision. They don't have any of the normal travel stuff. They don't have the bag that would carry their belongings. They don't have a, a rod or staff that they would protect themselves with. They don't have an extra undergarment pair of underwear. Um, I, I mean, I don't think any of us would really go on a journey very far without having extra clothes to wear. And he sends them out with, without any of this and asks them then to be provided for by those who will accept them, those who take them in, those who provide them with hospitality, give them a place to stay and give them food to eat. And we see then that the gospel is spreading because of all of this, and that the authorities come to notice this. We see Herod coming to see what's going on in verses 7 and 9. And then right there in the middle of that, the story's kind of moving along, and then we have this story of the feeding of the 5,000. We see that Jesus goes out towards the Seda fishing town on the north side of Galilee, and then he welcomes people, and he heals them. So he's kind of doing the same thing that he had sent his disciples out to do. We see that the day is coming to a close. It's starting to get towards the evening. People are needing to eat something. They're needing to have a place to stay. And we see the problem that arises because of that. Luke records that there are 5,000 men here. This is probably more than that on, on total because the, the word here used for that is specifically for men. So it's not a general term that could mean um, you know, men and women in the way that we might say, use the word men, uh, oftentimes used for both. So there's, there's 5,000 men at least. And so the disciples are kind of like, well, what are we going to do? You, you, want, you don't want them to go anywhere. You want us to give them food. 
we can't pay for this. This would have been, you know, around about seven months of salary, essentially, as far as what it would cost to feed these people. Um, they're just at a loss. They're like, what, what's going on? What are, we, what are you going to do? Why don't you want to send these people into the towns to go find provisions for themselves? Like, we can't handle this. This isn't something that we're equipped to do here. After this, Jesus then performs the miracle of feeding. He breaks the bread. He multiplies it miraculously. And the people eat. Directly following this, he goes off and meets his, with his disciples. And it would seem there's no real account of what happened after this. There's no people saying, thank you for the meal. It's kind of like everybody left. I mean, how would you feel if some, you went over to somebody's house, they gave you all this food, and you're like, see you later, I'm out of here. Um, you know, it, it's just kind of odd that that's what happens here. And what I think it's pointing out is that there's not a lot of detail about this miracle. There's actually a surprising little detail about what's going on here. And the reason for that, I think, is because Luke is using this miracle to show something different about Jesus. Not to say something about the crowd, not to talk about the miracle in and of itself, but to show who Jesus is. Directly after this feeding, then in the context, we see that Jesus calls his followers then to a life of struggle and hardship. They have to take up their cross daily, and lose their lives in order to follow him. Additionally, there are two framing sections, questions here. So we see, as we read in the text, you might have noticed that there's two questions that are very similar. There's the question that is asked, that Herod asks, he says, who is this? They give the options. Well, it's, it's John. He's like, well, John, I beheaded. It can't be him. And he says, well, it's Elijah or it's one of the prophets of old. But then look down and you see that this same thing is asked again of Peter. Jesus says, he says, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Both questions are the same. One is left unanswered by Herod. He's just kind of curious. He wants to look into it. Doesn't really know what's going on. And then one question on the other side of this great feeding miracle is answered by Peter. So I think it's important and, and proper to ask the question about what exactly is going on in there, in that feeding parable, or in the feeding story, that's making sense of these two questions. These two questions sort of form a, a frame, like I said, around, around this feeding miracle. It's sort of like if you go to an art gallery, you see the pictures there. There might be some beautiful, ornate frames with lots of detail that are pretty to look at, but it's really all about the picture. In this case, it's kind of about both. You have the two questions on either side of this beautiful picture that Jesus is painting in his miracle. And the miracle, in this case, is just as important as what frames it, the questions. Who is Jesus? So then what about what happens in between demonstrates the answer? And how does the feeding of the 5,000 fit into the mission of Jesus and his kingdom, which we see in the commissioning of the 12, 
and the call to follow Christ. This question is important because it is not completely obvious. In fact, if the story was to be removed, the remaining verses would make plenty of sense and would flow quite nicely. If you were to just pull out the entire narrative of the, of the feeding, we would go directly from Jesus sending out his disciples, them coming back, saying exactly what happens, and Jesus saying, look, in order to follow me, this is how you have to live. It, just, it, it would flow perfectly. So when that happens, it's important to then see, okay, what's going on here? What's, what's being said here when we see this feeding of the 5,000 people? It seems to kind of not fit. And it, at first glance, it does. So I think it's important to just then look at it and see, okay, what about what's going on in this feeding passage makes it fit with the rest of the passage? I think that in light of these questions, it is clear that Luke is posing a question to the reader. Who is Jesus? It is a simple question, but there seems to be two options presented in the text. Two options being what Jesus or what uh, people are saying. That would be that he is John the Baptist, who was beheaded by Herod. And it actually, in reading Mark 1, we can kind of rule that out because it appears as though Mark describes John the Baptist as this Elijah figure that was going to come and proclaim Christ, make way, make way for him, clear his path in his quote of Malachi and Isaiah in Mark chapter 1. It could have been Elijah. This would have made some sense. Uh, he never died. In 2 Kings 2, there's the story of Elijah and Elisha. They're kind of walking along and the chariots of fire and horses of fire come down and Elijah gets in and goes off to heaven. So he wouldn't have ever died. So the idea maybe, well, maybe he came back. Maybe he rode down and, and he's back here now. There's also the prophecy, as I mentioned, in regard to John the Baptist, of Elijah coming as the herald of the day of the Lord to prepare the way of the Messiah in Malachi 4. So this would have made some sense. And then the third option that is offered by the people is that he's one of the prophets of old. This is a generic term. He's just, you know, maybe one of the prophets who has come. And this is actually pretty interesting because none of the people in Israel at that time probably would have believed that the prophets were still around. That was kind of something that happened a long time ago. We have their writings, we have the history, but it's not something that's really happening still today. In regard to this, Craig Keener, uh, commentator, writes, because many Palestinian Jews believed that the prophets in the Old Testament sense had ceased, ranking Jesus among the prophets would have been radical. But it was not radical enough to grasp his true identity. So Jesus is better than the prophets precisely because he's the one that the prophets are talking about. So he can't be one of the prophets if he's one of the ones that the prophets are pointing forwards to. So I think going through these, John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophets of old, you know, it, you know, we've read the rest of the Gospels, but just going through here, it's pretty easy to see that this doesn't match up with who Jesus is. And in fact, he's something better than this. So that's, that's the first option. When we come and we ask the question, who is Jesus that is asked, 
we can answer what the people are saying. But what's the second option? These titles don't convey truly who Jesus is and how important he is. The only other option is to believe what Jesus demonstrates he is and what he calls his followers to believe. And that draws us further into the passage, further into the feeding. There are two main identities that Jesus reveals himself as. We had the passage read before uh, of the proclamation of Jesus coming or the prophecy of him coming in Deuteronomy as the new Moses. And that's the first category here. I think the images that are happening here are to draw our minds back to a time when God provided for his people in the wilderness. You'll notice that in verse 12, it says that the place is desolate. The disciples are saying, this is a desolate place. There's no food out here. How are we going to get any food? We have to send them into the towns. This is, in fact, the same word that is used for the wilderness or desert in the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And I think it's, it's showing this reality and, and pointing back to that, Jesus drawing people into the wilderness and providing for their food. In addition, there are the 12 leftover baskets, which are quite possibly a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel and also to the 12 disciples who are provided for abundantly. So this, this imagery kind of leads us to think that maybe there's something deeper happening here. Maybe there's some more significance to what Jesus is doing here. Maybe he's not just going out and feeding them because, well, he's God and he can. Maybe he's trying to show us something about who he is, about his identity. It is said that one like Moses would come, as we read in Deuteronomy 18. This prophecy is then explicitly applied to Jesus, the same, same text, by Luke in the book of Acts, in Acts 3, 19 through 23. So Peter, in his sermon there, says, Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets. From ancient time, Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So I think it's clear here that Luke sees Jesus as this sort of Moses figure. And we have the prophecy there. We have all these connections coming to it. So then Jesus takes these people out into a desolate place. Luke writes that and notes that it's this desolate place and then provides for them miraculously in the same way that the Israelites were taken into a desolate place, into a wilderness, and provided for with manna and food and sustenance miraculously. This imagery in these words of Peter in Acts and also here in Luke of the wilderness feeding does more than simply say some, does more. It says something about Jesus' identity. It also paints a picture of the new kingdom which is being constituted in Christ. In the same way that God was calling his people out in the, new, in the exodus, at the, in the beginning when he was taking his people out of, out of Egypt and to the land of Israel, 
This is painting a picture of the entrance into the kingdom, which takes us to our second identity of Jesus. So he's, he's new Moses, the prophesied one who would come and be a new prophet, lead the people to the kingdom. And then secondly, he's the messianic king. He is the one who's bringing about all of the Old Testament promises about the Messiah, about the King. He will abundantly provide for those who follow him. Peter calls him the Christ, which is an amazing declaration, really, of Jesus' identity. He is the Christ. It's a title. He is the Messianic King. It's not simply just a name to these people. They would have seen it as a, an extreme designation. He was more than just a man. He was the king, the messianic king sent from God. And in fact, again, Luke knows this. We see Luke recording this when the angel comes and speaks to Mary and talks about what would happen uh, with her and Jesus and, and what he was to become in Luke chapter 1. Luke records, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So you see, again, in the same way that we know that Luke knew about and, and thought about and considered Jesus to be the new Moses, we also see that he definitely considered Jesus to be the king, the messianic king. Specifically, he is the one in this passage who brings the kingdom to pass and is the ultimate provider of abundance. And this abundance being promised by God. All throughout the Old Testament, I won't take the time to read the passages right now, but Jesus, God is promising to his people a time of abundance, a time when there would no longer be any more hunger, there would no longer be uh, any more need, no more strife. God would provide everything for them. This, this picture of rich food, of the land of milk and honey, all of this pointing forwards then to a new reality in the kingdom. This is the reality that Jesus is pointing to when he feeds the people. This is the deeper meaning of what he is doing. Yes, he's providing a meal for them, but he's doing so much more than that. He's demonstrating who he is as the messianic king. The kingdom is a place of abundant provision. This is why Jesus shows hospitality. He is foreshadowing the abundant provisions of the kingdom. He is painting a beautiful picture of the feast that is coming in his kingdom. This is what we saw in the Revelation passage. Revelation 7 spoke of a time when there would be no more hunger and thirst when suffering would be done away with, of a glorious time when there would be worship of the saints around the throne who had come through suffering, who had come through struggle and tribulation. This idea relates then back to the context of Jesus sending out the 12 and that it demonstrates that God does ultimately provide for those who follow him, even if they go without normal provisions and are called to a life of loss and suffering. So remember, at the very beginning, he sends out his disciples, 
sends them out. They, he doesn't really give them anything. He says, you know, you're not going to take any of this stuff with you. I'm going to give you authority and power, and you're going to go out and serve me. And so you might think they're not, they're not going to be provided for. But this, this is showing then that God ultimately provides for those who follow him. He ultimately takes care of and ultimately feeds and ultimately blesses those who follow him. He does not leave them out in the same way that he did not leave the crowds out, in the same way that he did not send them out to go fend for themselves. What is then so powerful and shocking here is the following teaching of Jesus that would seem to contradict this picture of kingdom prosperity. So we have this, this picture of the kingdom, of the time of restoration, the time of expectation, the time of feasting, the time of ultimate provision being pictured, the messianic king providing for his people in glory. But then right after that, in the context that we read, we see that Jesus says that the kingdom is only entered by those who lose everything, follow a king who is condemned to die. This seems odd at first, right? So you, they send, he sends them out without provision and then says, you know, you're going to be provided for in the kingdom, but then you have to go out and you have to die and you have to follow a king who's dying and you have to lose everything in order to follow me. This apparent paradox is shocking to say the least. It's as if Jesus is saying, go out, go without provision. I'll provide abundantly, but you'll pay dearly, and your journey will be difficult. Ultimately, however, there is no paradox. What we are seeing is the future breaking into the present through the miracle of Jesus. It is true that those who follow him will lose all, but it is also true that those who follow him will be abundantly provided for and ultimately given rest in his kingdom. Further, we see that in Jesus' death, which he foretells in the passage, that is the means of ultimately providing this, ultimately providing his kingdom. Jesus is the one who came to suffer and to die and to provide a kingdom where there would be no more suffering and no more death and abundance of provision. So why didn't Jesus send the crowds away then? It's kind of the question that we ask. And I think the answer seems to be not, again, that he's just wanting to feed them, that he's just wanting to take care of them. I'm sure that he did want to feed them, that he did want to take care of them, that he did care for the people themselves. But I think what we see through reading this is that there's something much more significant here, that he is demonstrating and making a profound statement about who he is and the nature of the kingdom of God. We also see in this passage two other frames somewhat. So we see those who come in and receive the disciples. We see Jesus receiving the people and providing for them. 
but we also see people that are on the outside. So if those are the people that are inside, in the kingdom, in the, the feeding, Jesus is demonstrating the realities of the kingdom and essentially bringing those realities back from the future into the present and saying, this is what it's going to be like. If that's really what Jesus is doing here, then who are those who are on the outside? And I, I think there's, there's an interesting sort of separation here that you see. You see those on the outside who are persecuting him. You see those on the outside who don't understand. You see Herod on the outside who doesn't get who Jesus is, the rulers. You see the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who ultimately put Jesus to death. All of the people, again, like we've seen throughout this series, all of the people who should get and understand who Jesus is completely miss the point. They don't get it. They don't understand. In fact, they're the ones who will put him to death. Coming to Jesus in this sense is not a matter of pedigree, of knowledge, of authority, of power. It's a matter of humble submission to him as king and willingness to lose all to follow him. So I think it's fitting to also ask ourselves, ourselves, the question that is being asked here. The question being asked then, who is Jesus? Who is this guy who, who comes and is doing all these miraculous things, who is healing, who is casting out demons, who is feeding? Who, who is this? Who is this man? Is he simply a prophet or a proclaimer of the Messiah to come? Is he the Elijah? Is he just one of the old prophets? Is he John the Baptist? And I think we've seen that those titles don't really say who Jesus is. They say too little. In fact, he is the object of what those things are pointing to. Or is he the new Moses and the ruler of God's kingdom who provides for his people in the midst of hardship and promises a kingdom with abundant provisions? I think that if that is true, I think that's what Luke is demonstrating here, if that's true, then there's a call here on us. There's, there's something that we have to square with. Then, If this is who Jesus is, that has implications for our lives. We ought not to assume that Jesus is simply providing food for the crowd, because he can. We must rather ask ourselves why Jesus saw this opportunity as fitting to display the kingdom through a miracle and what we are to learn about his kingdom from it. It's not simply a nice account, as we've said. It is a demonstration of a reality that has implications for how we live, how we conduct our lives. If this is really who Jesus is, if he is really the king, if he is really the Messiah, if he is really the new Moses, and he offers abundance, but also sends us out to suffer and loss, to follow him. That means something for us. Just a few, a few questions maybe to ask and, and seeing who do I believe that Jesus is? Am I seeing him for who he really is? Question one, do I see Jesus for who he really is? Do I believe that Jesus is the Christ is my 
view of who Jesus is lining up with who he says he is, who he demonstrates himself to be? Or do I believe that something, Jesus is something less? You know, and, and maybe he's a good guy or maybe he's done a lot of great things, but he's not really my king. So who do I believe he is? And secondly, if I believe that Jesus is my king, if I believe that this is true, that he is the Messiah, that he is the ruler, and that that means something, do I live as if Jesus is who he says he is? Do I live under his rule? Do I live in expectation of his kingdom? I think that becomes a lot clearer when things get a lot worse. I think without that expectation, the future being as unpredictable as it is. Um, you know, everybody right now is worried about lots of different issues, about elections, about terrorism, about issues with gender identity, uh, sexual orientation. There's a, there's a lot of things going on. There's hunger, there's need. There's all these things. There's all this stuff that we can't control. The question is, do we live in expectation of this kingdom? Do we really live that way? Do we look forward to the day when, as we saw in Revelation, we come before the presence of God and he wipes away all tears. He takes all of our sorrows. And we see that everything in life that others may be meant for evil, that God meant for good. Do we live in that expectation? Do we hold our possessions loosely? Or are we trying to amass things to make us happy? That's not a kingdom mindset. It's not a mindset looking forward to a day when all of your needs are met and everything that you could ever want is there in Christ. Do we use our resources to help others? Do we see things that we have as not our own and, and far more value in how they can help other people than in how they can help us and make us feel good? Do we preach the kingdom? Are we living in that reality and going out and, and preaching the truth to people who are dying and hurting and trying to hurt us even? And seeing the sorrow in their position, seeing that they're lost without hope. Are we going out like the disciples and proclaiming this reality of the one who has come to give abundance and to feed? Are we living with hope or are we hopeless? Are we giving up or are we looking forward to a time when the suffering that we do experience comes to an end. Some in this room may experience suffering in, in some way or another, whether it's physical or social, relational. Everybody experiences some aspect of suffering, some aspect of the fall continually nagging them in their own sinfulness, in their own lives? Do we live with hope that that will one day come to an end?
We will no longer stand in this shadow, but we will see God face to face in his kingdom. And the third question to ask, am I willing to follow him to the cross? So if I believe that Jesus is king, and I want to follow him, Jesus lines out what that's going to mean. He lines out that that's a serious thing. Like we've seen, there's the hope. There's the hope of the ultimate provision. But there's also the, the, the fact that Jesus says to follow me, you're going to have to lose a lot. You have to lose the desire to save your own soul. You're going to have to lose yourself, essentially, to follow me. That's not very... It's, it's not very individualistic. That's not very focused on yourself. It's so easy to get into the mindset of thinking about what I can do or how I can be or how great I can become. But Jesus calls us to the complete opposite. Are we willing to follow him? Are we willing to sacrifice all for Christ? That might mean actually physically sacrificing your life. There are some who have to do that. That is, that is still happening today. Giving of your life. Or that might mean giving of your life every day. Meaning you, you continue living, but you're still giving of it. It's not your own. You may not physically die, but every single day you're taking up the cross. You're following him, ready to die ready to live your life in a way that shows that you have a hope beyond this world? Do we risk anything to follow him? I think even, even in America, where we have a lot of privilege as Christians, as worshipers, we will risk something, whether it's reputation or success or security, I mean, you know, you, you go talk to somebody at work or somebody you meet and you're out and you say something about Jesus. There's going to be, there, there's going to be some, you know, people are going to ostracize you. People are going to think less of you maybe. People are going to put you down or, or talk about you behind your back because of it. But is that, is that really important to us? Are we willing to risk those small things that we encounter here? The reputation loss. the thought that maybe we won't be as successful to some people if we live for Christ. Maybe we can't do certain things. Maybe we can't take certain jobs. Maybe we can't accomplish certain things that we could if we were willing to sell out. In some, some cases, there will be a risk of safety again. But are we willing to do this? And do we risk anything? I think these questions are important to ask. And just asking them myself coming to this, when I came to this, I didn't expect to see so much, a challenge to myself of who Jesus is and how that relates to my life. I think that's really what Luke is getting at here. He's not, he's not coming just to tell us a nice story and, and you know, give us this idea that then, okay, Jesus is very powerful. He can do anything he wants. It's way more than that. He's demonstrating who he is. The question being asked, who Jesus is, 
And then are you willing to follow him? Those are the questions. Those are the questions that going through this, just being posed to myself and, and realizing how much in my own heart I'm not willing to follow him. In my own heart, there's so many ways that I hold back. There's so many ways when I don't live in hope, when I, when I fall into despair or when I think that I have to control everything, when in reality it's his control. He's in control of all things. He is the king. So do we live in that hope? Are we looking forward to the day when the king will come, set all things right, and provide for us the blessing of abundance and provision and rest ultimately? Let's pray. Lord, we realize that it's easy in our lives to forget who you are. It's also easy for us just to acknowledge who you are and go about our lives as if it doesn't mean anything. Lord, I pray that you would break us of this. Help us to think. Help us to filter everything we do, every decision we make, every thought through the lens of how it serves your kingdom, of how it demonstrates to others who you are. Help us to extend hospitality to others, to use our resources for helping those who are less fortunate, for building your kingdom, to use our time serving you, preaching your word, to a lost and dying world. Lord, give us hope. Give us a knowledge of the security that we have in a world that seems to be very shaky and insecure. But we acknowledge that you have all authority. You have all power. You are able to do all things. And Lord, because of that, we have hope. We have security. Lord, for this, we give you praise. For this, we give you honor. For this, we delight in you, and we thank you for your Son who has accomplished this for us. Amen.